Good morning and welcome to Billericay Baptist Church. Thank you for being with us this morning. Today's sermon is kind of aimed at a specific group of people. Hopefully it's relevant to everyone, but I want to start off by addressing anyone who's watching this sermon who has only recently started exploring a relationship with God. Someone who's only recently, maybe during the past few months even, begun to tune into these sermons, to watch the videos and to um, learn a little bit about the Christian faith. And the message is very, very simple. I'm not going to blind you with theology or, or come out with anything, um, anything particularly deep. The message is simply, don't get religious. Whatever you do, don't get religious. Now, every time someone makes a, a, a statement like that, it's important to qualify it. So please don't take that as your cue to switch off your telly and to, uh, to walk away thinking I'm never going to watch any one of those sermons again. That's not what I mean. Let me qualify that statement. For an awful lot of people who never, ever go to church, who never, ever explore the Christian faith or their relationship with any sort of spirituality or God himself, there is a reason for it. And the reason has to be acknowledged. You see, at the moment you might be watching this sitting at home, maybe sitting in bed, who knows, it's Sunday morning. You could be anywhere, in your own house, or maybe in someone else's house. But normally, when we're not under the restrictions, whatever they are by the time you get around to watching this, um, normally you won't have a problem with getting out of the house, going shopping, going to work, going to see friends, relatives, maybe saying hello to neighbours. You won't have a problem leaving home. So the reason you don't go to church isn't that you don't like leaving home. You also don't have a problem with God. Because the fact you're tuning into this sermon means that although you might not necessarily agree with everything that's said, and that's fine, you do at least want to understand what it is that motivates Christians to have the faith that they profess. So the problem isn't with the building, the problem isn't with the concept, which leaves one option. The people. An awful lot of people I've spoken to find that the biggest barrier that they find in going, actually physically going into a church is that they don't like meeting Christians. Or at least they don't want to meet a Christian that fills the stereotype that they hold. You see, being religious is a problem in church. Because being religious is what happens when we see our faith not as a relationship with God, but instead as a series of rules and regulations that we have to keep in order to be able to call ourselves Christian. God doesn't demand that we are religious in our faith. He demands that we are relational in our faith. Now, I'm not knocking religion. Sometimes there are certain things in life that we should be religious about. Let me give you an example. Um, this week in our house, on uh, I think it was Wednesday night, I was quite excited because Joe had said, my wife this is, she had said, um, right, tonight for dinner I'm going to cook us a, um, a, a fried breakfast dinner. 
That means we have, we have eggs and we have bacon and we have mushrooms and beans and sausages and all sorts of things like that. It's brilliant. You get a plate full. Love it. It's great. I was excited, as you can tell. And so I was disappointed. I was mortified. I was devastated when she got the bacon out of the fridge, looked at the packet and said, oh, no, it says used by yesterday. It's yesterday's date. I said, don't worry about it. It's been in the fridge. It's only one day. It'll be fine. She said, Tom, it's meat. We can't take that risk. I said, don't be, don't be so silly. Come on, open it. So she opened it and she did this. Now, Joe has got the, the, the nose of a sniffer dog. I don't mean it's wet and slimy. I mean, she can smell anything from a long, long way off. Honestly, if she, if, she could, if she was used by on the Colombian border, then the cartels would put a price on her head. She's got an incredibly sensitive sense of smell. So when she reacted to the bacon like that, I thought, oh, come on, this is Jo. Of course she's going to smell something bad. That's, that's what she does. And so I took the packet from her. And the moment I did that, I crossed a line. You see, the moment I did that, I questioned I questioned her, her decision. She knew that I was going to take that packet and I was going to test it myself, which I did. And to be fair, it didn't smell great, but I really wanted the bacon. So she said, look, if you want it, you have it. And I felt a challenge. All right, I will. So I got out a pan. I got the bacon medallions out. I laid them out. There were eight of them. Put them in the oven. Went outside threw a ball around in the garden and uh, about 10 minutes later I came back in and I walked in with, with Timothy, our, our son and first thing he said was what's that smell? Now they both then looked at me as if, as if bad smells in the household are normally coming from my direction I can't imagine why they would do that but Joe suddenly said that'll be the bacon and she said it in, in that, that way that, that they have that says I told you so. And so I felt committed at this point. I thought, that bacon, when it comes out of, of, of that oven, even if it's green and maggoty, I'm going to have to eat it. I've got to, I've got to go through with this now. The smell got progressively worse as the bacon cooked more and more. And eventually we opened the oven door and got the bacon out. And um, if you didn't inhale as you ate it, it wasn't too bad. It was all right. But... If I'm being completely honest, if I hadn't have had to question Joe in the first place, then I probably wouldn't have eaten it. And I hadn't told her this, but she's about to find out. The next day, I didn't feel 100%, if I'm completely honest. But I'm still here, so it's okay. It's okay, and it was a good meal. Although, the reason I didn't feel 100% the next day is probably because Joe and Timothy refused to eat any of the bacon, so I had to eat an entire packet to myself probably got something to do with it but you see the reason I'm telling you that is because Joe is quite religious about use by dates on food and that's not a bad thing so when I say don't get religious I'm not talking about as a general life rule there are some things in life that we should be religious about but not our faith not our faith Jesus was absolutely clear that he did not want us to be religious about our faith you see, when we get religious, when we practice religion, 
what happens is we try to make ourselves better than others. We try to elevate ourselves and get better and better and more perfect and more perfect. What happens essentially is we try to elevate ourselves to the level of God. And we can't do that. So all we're doing is setting ourselves up for a fall. When we focus on the relational side of our faith, then what happens is we accept that we're just a fallen person, a fallen human being, part of God's creation. And what we find then is that rather than having to to elevate ourselves to try and reach up to God's level, what we find then is God reaches down to us. God comes down to our level. God works with us. Let me give you an example of, of how a religious a religious person can sometimes get things wrong and be a, a bad witness for the Christian faith. I've been out in a pub before and I've been told, you're a minister, you shouldn't be drinking. Now, I'm not going to preach on the rights and wrongs of drink, but I will say that there's nothing in scripture to say that I can't drink. Don't get drunk by all means, but I can have a drink. That's my, that's my interpretation of scripture. And in my relationship with Jesus, I'm really relaxed and comfortable with that interpretation of scripture. I think, it, I think it's correct. But I completely accept that for some other people, in their relationship with Jesus, they absolutely wouldn't drink, they wouldn't touch a drop. I completely respect that, and I think that if that's, if that's their, their reaction, their interpretation to scripture, then they're absolutely right in doing that, because that works for their relationship, and I respect that. But I've been in a situation before with a non-Christian friend where I've had someone, not from, not from the church, but from the wider community, saying, should you be doing that? You see, that's religion. That's not relational. I then find myself having to explain to my friend why there's a difference in the way that we interpret scripture, which doesn't really help me in trying to encourage them to explore their own relationship with God. Now, Jesus had a great conversation trying to to, to explain this concept with a man called Nicodemus. If we turn to John chapter 3, then what we find is a meeting between Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the religious class of their day. They were the ones who read the scriptures, who knew the law inside out, who, who made sure that they, they, were, they were absolutely on it when it came to keeping the law. They were very judgmental and condemnatory of those who didn't keep the law. And they were people who despised Jesus. At least most of them were. But some of them were actually enlightened. Some of them actually, after a short time of Jesus' ministry, knew that there was something in what Jesus was saying. And so we find ourselves in John chapter 3, witnessing a very important conversation. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a member of the Jewish ruling council. He had some authority, he had some status. He came to Jesus at night. He didn't want to be seen coming to Jesus. He didn't want other Pharisees to know. He didn't want other people to know that he was visiting Jesus. So he does it at night. And said, Rabbi, 
we know you're a teacher who's come from God. We know you're not a charlatan who's just trying his luck to convince people to earn a few quid. We know that you are a man of God. There's something about you. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus has has watched Jesus from afar. He's heard the the stories of Jesus' teaching and he's acknowledged that actually these are... This is in line with, with, with God's miracles. This is, this is someone who is actually acting within the power of God. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. In other words, Jesus sort of says, you don't know what you're talking about. How can you tell whether or not I'm, I'm a man of God? You don't know God. You don't know the kingdom of God. You don't know the kingdom signs. Unless you've been born again, there's no way that you know what the kingdom of God looks like. Nicodemus, understandably, is confused. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born again. Goodness knows the mental imagery that was going through Nicodemus's mind at the time, but I don't imagine it was pleasant. But Jesus puts him at ease. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So Jesus says, I'm not talking about maternal birth. I'm talking about change. I'm talking about new life. I'm talking about getting to a point in life, wherever you may be in in terms of age, where you change, you become a new person. We call that baptism. Jesus talks about being born of water. When we go through the waters of baptism, we, we believe as Baptists that we are fully submerged and then drawn out so that that full submersion, it represents a, a dying of the old self and a raising of the new. When we come out of the baptism pool, we've gone through an, an important, a significant event. There's been this outward sign of an inner change. That's why baptism is so important to the Christian faith. But when we read the book of Acts, there are several examples of, of water, baptism by water being separate to baptism in the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus says here is that actually you need to have both. We need to be born again in water, baptism, and to be born again spiritually. You see, when we become followers of Jesus, when we, when we read scripture and allow ourselves to be affected and changed by it, then, then what happens is we, we have to respond. We have to examine our lives up to that point and, and identify and be honest in acknowledging to God all the things that we've, we've been doing which dishonour him, displease him, things which go against the teachings of Jesus. And then we have to make a conscious decision, not necessarily to start getting it all right, just like that, because that's not realistic. But instead, we can commit to trying. We can commit to saying, right, from now on, I'm going to try to put right the things I've been putting wrong all those years. It's not an easy process, but it is part of us changing spiritually. It's part of our spiritual rebirth. And it can only come when we've entered into a relationship with Jesus. It's not something that we do because 
the Bible makes threats and we, we're in fear of God that we have to do it. It's something that we do in response to recognising what Jesus has done for us, dying on the cross to take away our sin. The conversation goes on between Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus eventually hints at his own death, saying that one day the Son of Man, him, that's who Jesus identified himself as, the Son of Man will be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. This was lifted up on the cross, nailed to the cross. Now Nicodemus wouldn't have had insight into what that meant at that point. But Jesus then comes out with one of the most famous verses of scripture that, that exists in the Bible. John 3.16. He says to Nicodemus, he gives him the gospel message in a nutshell. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So you see, if, if religion is our good deeds... There's nothing wrong with that. We should, we should do good deeds. We should make sure that we are the best people that we can be. We should make sure that we are, we are full of love and grace and mercy and, and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and peace and joy. That we help others as much as we can. That we, that we home the homeless. That we feed the hungry. That we stand with the afflicted. That we, that we support the oppressed. We should try our best to do all of these things. But none of these things are going to get us into heaven. If we could get into heaven through our good deeds, through being religious, then why Jesus? What that means, what that means is that God becomes a, a bloodthirsty butcher of a father who sends a son into the world for no other reason than to have him nailed to a cross and brutally murdered. If Jesus' death doesn't grant us access to salvation if, it, if that isn't the only way that we can reach salvation then then what does that say about our God Jesus is the only way to heaven following him and the only way that we can follow him is by being born again in him not by following a set of rules and and regulations not by not by being pharisaic but instead by being relational by being open and honest with our God. Nicodemus sort of understands what Jesus is saying. He would have gone away, he would have dwelt on it, meditated on it, prayed about it even. And what we know is that there are two more occasions when Nicodemus pops up in John's Gospel. First of all, in John chapter 7, Jesus has been challenged by a crowd of people some of them have have listened to what he said and, and begun to believe some of it others are dead against him and Jesus disappears and a, a, a temple guards are sent to to arrest him so he can be quizzed by the Pharisees but in verse 45 we're told finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them why didn't you bring him in the guards who have listened to what Jesus was saying to the crowd say no one ever spoke the way this man does. 
The Pharisees aren't impressed. You mean he's deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. So the Pharisees listen to the temple guards and, and rather than listening to what the temple guards have to say, they, they condemn them. They say, how dare you? How dare you tell us that there is something in what this man is saying? We'll make that decision, thank you very much. We, why not? We're not going to listen to this mob. But Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of the Pharisees, asked Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? In other words, Nicodemus sticks up for Jesus. He implores the Pharisees to to at least listen to what Jesus is saying. At least least give give him an audience. At least don't jump to conclusions, but try to understand and, and, and explore the ideas. But they reply, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So in other words, they're basing their judgment on one piece of scripture that they're taking in isolation. They're saying a prophet doesn't come from Galilee. End of story. Therefore, Jesus is no Messiah. But it's significant that Nicodemus has stuck his neck out for Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where someone has done that for you, where someone has put themselves at risk to to protect your honour. Or maybe you've done that for a friend. But as soon as that happens in a relationship, suddenly that relationship is a bond because suddenly both parties know that there is, there is a mutual appreciation there. The person who, who has been defended will always, always remember that. It means an awful lot. And the person who has done the defending has done it because they hold the other person in very high esteem. There is a bond that exists there from that point on. There is a trust. And so a relationship develops between... Nicodemus and Jesus. And then finally, we see Nicodemus present at the burial of Jesus after the crucifixion has taken place. John 19, chapter, uh, verse 38. Later, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Jesus has just been crucified on a cross like a criminal. And yet, Nicodemus and one of Jesus' disciples takes the body, takes a vast amount of spices that were used to wrap in the linen that was, that was wrapped around the body. And having died a criminal's death, they prepared Jesus for a royal burial. There's little doubt that at this point Nicodemus was convinced that Jesus was who he'd claimed to be.
that Nicodemus, through his relationship with Jesus, through, through making the effort to go and visit him that night, through listening rather than jumping to conclusions, rather than allowing any, any prejudices about a man from Galilee get in the way, through listening to Jesus and building that relationship, Nicodemus has come to understand Jesus. While the other Pharisees allowed religion to get in the way. In Luke's Gospel, we read a parable that Jesus said. In chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, verse 9, we're told to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, in other words, to some who were very religious. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. In other words... He's doing two things there. He's condemning this tax collector. Now, tax collectors weren't popular people. They were often very corrupt. But this Pharisee doesn't go and sit alongside and try to point out the error of the tax collector's ways. He doesn't give him the benefit of the doubt and say, well, let's not tar them all with the same brush. Instead, he stands in the temple and he prays, thanking God that he is not like other men, including robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. In the list he gives, the tax collector is worse than the evildoers, the robbers and the adulterers. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector, we have no idea whether he was corrupt, whether he was evil. We have no idea whether he abused his position or whether he was completely honest, straight as a die. But what we do know is that this parable isn't about the tax collector. This parable is Jesus telling us to be humble, to be relational, to look for the good in other people, to build relationships, have conversations, to drop our prejudices and not to thank God that we're better than other people because we're simply not. Timothy Keller, the American author, said the Bible teaches us that we are more flawed than we can imagine and more loved than we ever thought possible. I love that quote because it reminds us, it reminds us to stay humble. It reminds us to stay grounded. It reminds us that the only way that we're going to ever be able to fulfil God's will for us to build his kingdom on earth, to complete the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptising in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the only way that we can do that it's by being relational in our faith. It's by accepting that we're no better or worse than our fellow man or woman. 
but that we should embrace them, warts and all, just like God does the same for us. And only through that might they come to know their Father in heaven. To finish up then, let's just have a quick look at a biblical definition of religion that God approves of. It can be found in the book of James, the end of chapter 1. James writes, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't spend much time looking after widows and orphans. But that's not quite James's point. James's point is that God approves of our good deeds. God loves it when we do good deeds, when we, when we seek to help the vulnerable, to do all the good things that I spoke about earlier in the sermon. God loves that. But the second part, about being polluted by the world, that's the key to this. Not being polluted by, by a world that tells us that, that everything we do, we need to be perfect. We need to be getting better and better and better. And to transfer that into our church and say, well, we need to be more pious and higher and higher than those around us because we will simply be knocked down. Instead, we should go and do our good deeds. Not to elevate ourselves but to elevate our God, to recognise that all good things come from him, to recognise that he put in our hearts a desire to have a relationship with him, to know our creator, to know our heavenly father, but also a desire to go out and to help those in need, to do the right thing, to support others. You see, if we got to the end of our days and we hadn't done that, we'd be like the rich young man that we spoke about in last week's sermon who could list off all the commandments that he'd kept and all the right things that he'd done but simply wasn't prepared to follow Jesus if it meant sacrificing his wealth. If we get to the end of our days and find that that we haven't done what's necessary to put Jesus at the centre of our lives, to put our relationship with him at the centre of our existence then that'd leave a pretty bitter taste in the mouth. Worse even than a bit of dodgy bacon. <laughs>